Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. We are continuing in our sermon series, looking at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And today we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 through 21. It's printed in your order of worship. You could also follow along in a Bible as I read. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what, it, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning, and uh, thank you for this word that you've given us. Father, it is dense, it is beautiful, it is a clear, concise uh, articulation of the gospel, and we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit, as we have sung together, would descend on us this morning, and that you would encourage us and transform us by this word that we just heard, as we encounter the risen Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was uh, thinking about our passage this morning, uh, for some reason, an old Saturday Night Live uh, sketch came to mind. It's, I think, probably one of the most iconic SNL skits. Uh, It's the one where Chris Farley plays a motivational speaker named Matt Foley. Um, In the sketch, the father uh, hires this motivational speaker to come to his house in in an attempt to set his two teenagers straight as after they have gotten into some trouble. So the dad calls uh, Matt Foley up from the basement where he has been drinking coffee for the past four hours to get excited and pumped up. And as soon as he enters the room, Matt Foley announces that he is 35, eats a steady diet of government cheese, and lives in a van down by the river. Now he is such an abrasive, clumsy, train wreck of a man that he paradoxically succeeds in motivating the kids to get their act 
together. And let me just say, if you're in need of a good laugh, uh, I'd encourage you to watch it this afternoon. But if you'd allow me to make the leap, I think the way that the teenagers looked at Matt Foley must have been how some of the people in the church of Corinth looked at the Apostle Paul. Even though Paul was the front man for this young church, he really didn't look the part. Paul did manual labor. He was often homeless. To top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. Frankly, some people found Paul embarrassing. And there were other teachers in Corinth who he quotes later in chapter 10 saying, as saying, Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Those teachers also point out the sheer amount of suffering that Paul experienced as evidence that his apostleship was illegitimate. They're like, Paul's been shipwrecked again. Paul has been chased out of another town. Paul is in prison again. Do you really want to follow a guy like that? Do you really want to stake your hope on him? And so this is the relational context that Paul is addressing. And Paul begins, I think, with a bold move. He starts off by appealing to the final judgment of Christ. In verses 10 and 11, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, and what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that it actually matters whether he does right by them because God is going to hold him accountable. Now, Paul isn't saying that he fears being punished by God, because he knows better than anyone that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he is saying that at the end of the day, the good and the harm that we do here and now have eternal consequences. And he is convinced that God will judge him as having worked sincerely for their good, and he hopes that the Corinthians also know this deep down. But regardless of what the Corinthians think, Paul knows that his job isn't to be impressive. It is to point the Corinthians to the one who is impressive, King Jesus. So that as he says in verse 12, you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now this contrast between outer appearances and what is in the heart, or what is seen versus what is unseen, is a major theme in his letter, as we have already seen. And Paul is calling the church to mature into a faith that sees not just what is on the surface, but the spiritual unseen reality beneath. And to be clear, Paul isn't pitting the physical reality against the physical, uh, spiritual reality. But what he is shining a light on is that it is so easy to get seduced into living as if the values and standards that, the, that count in the world are all that exist. We get schooled on the importance of outward appearance starting from the time we are very young. 
I think we probably have all had the experience of having the wrong shoes or the wrong clothes and being made fun of for it. And as we get older, we have all had the experience of feeling our status go up or down the moment we tell someone our job title, our vocation. Now, of course, most of us would say that we know that the stuff that we own and the grades that we get and what's on our resume doesn't matter in an ultimate sense. But this pressure that we are under as we get looked up and down, evaluated by what is seen, conspires to shape us into people whose anxieties and imaginations are dominated by the image that we project and what other people think about us. And Paul is saying this overvaluing of our outer appearances actually erodes our humanity. The importance that the the world places on being impressive hasn't changed much from Paul's day to ours. You know, one of my favorite bands growing up was a black European R&B rap fusion duo who won a Grammy for Best New Artist in 1990. Now, some of you might already know the band that I'm thinking about or talking about. And if you do, you might have this song in your head. Girl, you know it's true. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, the duo was called Millie Vanilli, and they dominated the music scene in spandex shorts, thigh-high boots, and flowing hair extensions. Yes, they were awesome, but they also had a secret. They hadn't sung one word on their best-selling album, and they didn't sing one word in their concerts. And I recently heard uh, one of the band members tell their story on The Moth, which was fascinating. You know, the, the duo was actually really talented singers. But they had signed a contract without having a lawyer or a manager present to look it over. And after they had spent their advance money, the producer came back to them and gave them a choice. Lip sync on all three albums or pay all the money back. And as poor immigrants, they decided that they had to go along with the charade. And so even though they were, they desperately wanted to make music and this lie was eating them up inside, They let it go on, not for a week, not for a month, but for two years. And when they finally said no more and their secret was exposed, of course the media ate them alive. And all those people that worshipped them didn't didn't, uh, turn out to care about their real talent or the story behind the story. They rose to glory by the world's standards and they were judged by those same merciless standards. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, not only because I love Millie Vanilli and I want you to love Millie Vanilli, but I think it shows something about how we have been made. We were designed, we were made to be loved, to be seen, to be delighted in. And so when we get a taste of that, even when it's shallow and focused on outward appearances we tend to reorient our lives towards that source, like a sunflower that tracks the sun from east to west. 
But if what was seen and enjoyed about us isn't what is in our heart, as Paul says, then we're stuck keeping up appearances. And instinctively, we will always choose crumbs or scraps over starving. We will take hollow love over no love at all. But sometimes in building up our outward appearance to attract admiration, we don't realize that we're really building a prison that keeps our inner self from being known. Now, church, Paul, Paul knew this hunger to be seen and valued all too well. He was on that treadmill, hoping to earn significance through his image and accomplishments for years. In his other letters, in particular, Philippians, he talks about how in his old life, he was the very best at being impressive, at always being right and never being wrong, the best Pharisee of them all. And where did it lead him? It led him to hatred and emptiness and him becoming a religious zealot hunting down Christians in their homes and delivering them to prison and death. And then he has this life-changing encounter with Jesus who sees into his soul. And Jesus loves Paul even though Paul hates Jesus. And this kind of love turns Paul inside out. He becomes a new person. He becomes a new creation. The old man, compelled by rage and hate, was gone. And the new man is compelled by Christ's love for him. And the people that he hunted became the very people for whose sake he is willing to endure humiliation and hardship and the world thinking that he is out of his mind. And Paul's saying that the, the paradox of the cross turns upside down our ideas of glory and success. It changes how we see ourselves, and it changes how we see other people. The resurrected Jesus offers a hand up to those who have been kicked to the curb and a way out for those who are stuck in a pedestal of their own making. Now, Paul concludes in verses 14 and 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. Now, when Paul says that the love of Christ controls us, he means that Jesus' love is so satisfying, so what we have been made for, that experiencing it changes how we relate to the world. And we actually become more loving people, the more love that we receive. That's the human way. It's how we were designed. And if you think about how a child learns to be loving and kind, almost anyone will tell you that it's not by lecturing them on being more loving and kind. You can demand compliance, but you cannot demand a state of the heart. But the way that we teach our children to love is by loving them well. Lots of kindness, lots of patience, especially when it's difficult. And as the saying goes, do what I say, not as I do, 
just doesn't work because that's not how we were made. And so it follows that God doesn't expect us to learn to love just by commanding us to love. Rather, he had to come down and show us how to love. Love compelled Jesus to embrace the cross. Love drew him there. Love held him there. It's Jesus' love for us compelled him to step in and absorb the consequence of every arrow that evil has ever aimed at us and every arrow that we have ever aimed at other people. And God doesn't look at the brokenness of this world in disgust and think, you know what? Let's throw it out. Let's start over. No, he looks out at the brokenness in this world and he steps in front and he takes the heat himself. As Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And like Paul, through experiencing this kind of love, we are transformed into people who are fueled by love as well. God sets to work at restoring our souls and setting everything right again. Church, this is what theologians call regeneration. It's an act of God by which he imparts a new spiritual life to us, new motivation, new energy, new vision, new values with which to love. The prophet Ezekiel puts it this way. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. When we come to Jesus, every part of us is affected and we are changed from the inside out. In fact, in fact, the security of his love makes it so safe for us to no longer have to live in a self-consumed way. Another way of saying this is that each of us gains a ministry, a vocation, a job in this world of living out the love of Jesus towards other people. And I love it. I love it because Paul names our vocation. He calls us ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, an ambassador is an appointed representative who goes to live in a foreign land in order to facilitate, facilitate good relationships between two countries and to advocate on behalf of their country. And as ambassadors, our king has commissioned us to represent him and to act on his behalf. And Paul says, therefore, that, that Jesus is making his invitation to people through our relationship with them. Now, I remember learning in school about Benjamin Franklin wearing a coon skin cap when he was the ambassador to France. And he came to mind as I was thinking about what it meant to be an ambassador. So I did a little reading, and I learned that he actually lived in France for two different periods in his life as ambassador. The first time was in 1767 when he wore, and when he was there, he wore the clothes of a fashionable Frenchman. 
including a powdered wig as a way of fitting in and being respectful to the court. But when he returned nine years later, he abandoned all the decorum of French dress and instead he wore a simple homespun brown suit, spectacles, and a large shapeless fur hat. And it was Franklin's hat that garnered the most attention and he wore it constantly. And I have to admit, I'm a little envious of the confidence he had to pull this off. And yet he did pull it off. And the French were fascinated. Not only did the Frenchmen, sympathetic to the American Revolution, begin to wear fur caps, but French women also began to do their hair in a style that mimicked the shape of his famous hat. I think there is something here for us as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. We're invited to bring the customs and the patterns and the look and the feel of our home home country to the places that we inhabit. For example, because our citizenship, as Paul says, is in heaven, we don't measure people's value like we used to. But according to what Jesus has done for them, which is the same as what he has done for us, we now measure in units of love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. There really aren't any other measurements that count. And we also follow different laws, like the ones that say to love our enemies and pray for those who mean us harm. You see, whether you are a teacher or a lawyer, a student or a stay-at-home parent, Paul is saying that how God makes his appeal to the world is through your face, your kindness, your love for others. It's like Jesus inviting them to dinner through our care and hospitality. This is what it means, at least in part, to be an ambassador for Christ. But church, here's the truth. We cannot hand out what we have not received. We cannot give to another what we have not received. And that is Paul's invitation to you and me and his plea for us. Draw near to God who has already drawn near to you and me, who offers us freedom to know and be known, who offers us significance and a vocation and a seat at his table. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that You don't just tell us to go and be an ambassador in this world. That Jesus first came to be your ambassador, to show us, to give us a taste, to renew us, so that we know exactly what it looks like, what it feels like to be your representative on behalf of you in this broken world. And Father, as we go out to our separate places, that we go into our neighborhoods, Father, may we give our neighbors a taste of the goodness of heaven. 
May we give them a taste of you and may we point them to what you have done for them and what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.